Hello, and welcome to another study as I explore the fourth book of the New Testament, John's Gospel. My name is Colin, and today we tackle a statement from Jesus that the audience of that day found tough to grasp. Some even found it downright scandalous. So what was it that had so many up in arms? Well, it was Jesus' insistence that unless you eat of his flesh and drink his blood, you wouldn't have eternal life. To the Jewish mind, the notion of eating human flesh and drinking blood would go against the law. But as Pastor Brian shows us today, Jesus was speaking figuratively, saying that consuming his body and drinking his blood is a metaphor for believing in him, a metaphor that communicates the seriousness of the belief we're called to follow. We're in John chapter 6 with a message Pastor Brian is calling, Satiated by the Son of God. So here we are in our Gospel of John and looking once again at this sixth chapter. And, and here in the sixth chapter, just you know, remember the background. It all begins with this miracle that Jesus performs of feeding the multitude with these two small fish and few loaves of bread. And so this has impacted uh, the people in an extraordinary way, except it hasn't really penetrated uh, spiritually to them. It, it's more, uh, man, this, this guy, he's taking care of all of us. Let's, let's follow him and see what else he's going to do for us. And so Jesus is correcting that throughout this uh, long chapter here. And notice that it says that uh, all of these things happened, this, this uh, conversation that's going on, the debate to some extent, the teaching of Jesus, all of this happens in the synagogue in Capernaum. And we are about to put up a picture of the synagogue in Capernaum. There it is. And um, I just wanted us to, to kind of have a visual. So, you know, this is one of the beautiful things about going to Israel. We, when we're in Israel, we're in that synagogue right there teaching on this text. And you're like, oh my goodness, wow, this is, this is amazing to be right there. So I thought we would just import Capernaum right here into our gathering today so we could just kind of get a, a visual for what's going on. But, but as, as we're going through this, Jesus, he, he again, he's talking about life. He's offering them life. He's reemphasizing once again that he is the source of life. And so our, our theme, life in his name, John's gospel is about life. It is about real life, fullness of life, abundant life. What Jesus is offering to humanity is a quality of life that is other than, greater than anything we can know or attain on our own. Jesus came into the world to give this life to all who will come to him. And here in these verses, we read 
Or here in these verses we read, we see once again Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life, promising that those who come to him will never again hunger or thirst. He claims an extraordinary place amongst humanity, that, that he is the one and only person who can bring ultimate and complete satisfaction to us. He is saying, through me, human beings will find their ultimate fulfillment. And in making these kinds of statements, Jesus is claiming to be and to do things that can only rightly be said of God. And so that's part of the reason why the people are offended. He's, he's setting himself apart and he's making these exclusive claims. And so as we come to verse 42, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. And then he says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. So there are a few statements here in this long portion that we read that we need to uh, pay closer attention to. And so this is the first one that we need to consider. Jesus is speaking here about being drawn by God. A truth we do well to remember we have believed in Jesus because we have been drawn to him by the Father. All who come to Christ, according to Jesus here, are drawn to him by the Father. We don't realize how deep sin has affected our hearts and our minds. But sin has affected us so deeply and so thoroughly that if we were left to ourselves, we would never have made our way to Jesus. So it's just a good thing to remember that I'm a follower of Jesus because he sought me out. I mean, that, that picture is repeated over and over again in the scriptures, isn't it? Jesus is what? He's the, he's the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? Well, if, if uh, a sheep is lost, he goes and seeks out that lost sheep and brings back that lost sheep. And we're, we're given this picture of God seeking us out in all different kinds of ways, sometimes in... in sort of uh, parable form or story form. But then we're also told very straightforwardly things like we love him because he first loved us. 
So it's important to recognize this, that, that at the end of the day, we, we, we often use the term to describe our experiences. You know, I was seeking after God. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but I'm just saying that we need to remember that we're seeking after God because he sought after us. But isn't that a wonderful truth to really grab hold of? That God went looking for you, specifically, individually, personally. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Because as I said, if we were left to ourselves, we would have never come to the Lord on our own. And scripture makes this clear over and over again. Ephesians chapter two tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Second Corinthians four reminds us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Second uh, Timothy two tells us that the disobedient have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Taken captive, held captive. First John chapter five tells us that the whole world lies in the grasp of the evil one. So those are just a few passages that, that tell us about our natural condition, our plight. That if we were left on our own, we would have continued to go astray. Remember Isaiah's um, prophetic word that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to their own way. And, and that, that is the trajectory of our lives. We would have continued to go that way were it not for the fact that the Father drew us. Now, we have to talk a little bit more about this whole idea of God drawing people to himself because some see in this passage. So let me just say this. Verse 44 is, um, it's one of the proof text that people who hold a certain theological position will go to to support their position. So in many circles, John 6, 44 is a very famous verse because this is the verse that tells uh, them and others that their particular, particular view of salvation is the correct one. So what is that view? Some see this passage as proof that God only chooses certain people to be saved and either predestined or simply left everyone else to perish. So there is a, a perspective, there's a theological position that says that God has um, chosen, which we do agree that God has chosen, the scripture says God has chosen, but, but this position is that God has chosen some uh, to life and either predestined or left other people to perish, and those who espouse this view would also say that Christ did not die for everyone, but he only died for the elect. So John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, they would understand the world as being the world of the elect, not the world 
in the sense of the totality of all uh, humanity. So that, that is what then becomes known as um, two points, unconditional election, point number one, God chose, and point number two, limited atonement. The atonement that Jesus provided was limited to uh, just to the elect. So how do we respond to that view? If you haven't come across that at this point in your Christian life, um, well, you probably will sooner or later. And it's not just that you will come across it through people, you will come across it through, through reading, through reading books. And I, I want to make clear that those who hold this position, I, I'm not here to demonize them or to say that they're bad. Um, I don't think that. I actually have many friends who hold this position. Um, I just do not believe that that is really what Scripture is saying. So this is a, a, a bit of a, um, an apologetic against the Calvinistic position. That's what we're talking about here. So, what do we conclude when we look at verse 44? Let me read it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Well, the first thing to note is this. The passage itself doesn't actually say anything about those who don't come. Notice that. He says, all who, all who come to me. He doesn't say anything about those who don't come. It simply says, all who come are drawn by the Father. Secondly, we know from other verses, 1 Timothy 1.4, for example, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God makes that crystal clear. He is... He, he desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter says something very similar in his second letter. He says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God wants everyone to be saved. If God is not drawing certain people. It is because of his foreknowledge. And I say, if God's not drawing certain people, because I'm not convinced that he's not drawing everyone, at least at some point. And perhaps there is a point where he is no longer drawing them, but... Um, but let's just say he, he, there are certain people God is just, he's not drawing them to himself. Why would he not be drawing them to himself? We know that it can't be because he doesn't want them to be saved because he's already told us in a number of places that he, he does want them to be saved. So if he's not drawing people, it's because in his foreknowledge, mean, meaning knowledge in advance, he knows who will and will not respond to his offer of grace. So this is something about God that is true, 
God possesses foreknowledge. He knows everything in advance. That's revealed in, um, in predictive prophecy. God tells the future in minute detail hundreds or even thousands of years before it happens. How, how can God do that? Well, he knows all things. He has foreknowledge. So foreknowledge could be the answer to God not drawing certain people. But as I indicated, I believe that he even seeks to draw those who in the end he knows will never respond. See, I, I believe that he does do that. And I, I believe it on one level because I, I think I've witnessed it. I, I have seen God at work in people's lives seeking to draw them to himself and them resisting. But more importantly than what I've observed, I think the Bible actually teaches this. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author speaks of those who have, number one, been enlightened, two, tasted the heavenly gift, three, shared in the Holy Spirit, and four, participated in the powers of the age to come and nevertheless perish. So just that description there, how do you, uh, how do you taste of the heavenly gift or partake of the Holy Spirit um, if it's not that God has, in some sense, been seeking to draw you to himself. And so, let's just understand that those who are not coming, Jesus is speaking to them, and he's saying, don't grumble, because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. If God's not drawing them, it's because he knows that they will not respond. But on the other hand, in the very text itself, God is obviously seeking to draw them because he's there in front of them, inviting them to come to him. So we needed to address that, even though it's sort of outside of what our main point is today. Our main point is... What Jesus is talking about here, um, when, he's, when he's inviting us to feed on him. But we need to look at uh, the language that Jesus is using. So he's using this, this offensive language. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Verses 53 through 56. Truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. 
Jesus is using language that is purposely meant, really it's meant to challenge them to think and go deeper than their surface interest in bread. Remember, that's the background. It's, it's um, he's done this miraculous thing as a sign that they would recognize him as the bread that came down from heaven that would give life to the world. But they're just thinking about the fact that this guy, he supplied us with amazing bread. So he's wanting to, in a sense, shock them out of their spiritual complacency. I mean, this is shock language right here. And it is especially shock language to a Jewish audience. If he was preaching among cannibals, they would have just thought, okay, (laughs) whatever you say. We do that all the time. Uh, Non-cannibals would be probably offended, but Jews would be exceedingly offended because if there was anything that was made crystal clear in Jewish law is that you were never to drink blood. You, you, drinking blood was absolutely forbidden because as Leviticus says, the life of all flesh is in the blood and God said, I've given it to you upon the altar, but it was strictly forbidden to drink blood. And of course, to eat human flesh would have been just as equally forbidden because um, Jews were not to not only not drink blood, but they were not to eat uh, any unclean flesh. And there were a variety of animals that they couldn't even eat, much less eating a human body. And so, again, Jesus is wanting to shock them out of their complacency And he's really wanting them to understand that what he's calling them to is something that is, it's so deep. And it is so all-consuming that it would be like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So the question then is what exactly is happening here? And let's just, today's a little bit of a, unintentionally, but it's just in the text, but it's, it's a little bit of an apologetic session today. First about the, um, the, those reform doctrines, but now we have to address um, some other false teaching within the church. And so Jesus is not speaking literally here. That's that's the thing to just know up front. He's not speaking literally like the Roman Catholic Church has taught. They see these words as support for the doctrine of transubstantiation. Any of you raised in the Catholic Church here? Okay. 
I, I was too. So transubstantiation, for those of you that were raised in the church, you might remember this from catechism. Um, for those of you that were not, perhaps you've heard about this or you're going to get um, a bit of an education on it now. Um, transubstantiation is the idea that there is a miraculous thing that takes place during the Mass. You know, the Mass is all centered around the Eucharist. And that's why there's a daily Mass. Because every single day, uh, there needs to be the opportunity to, to partake of the body of Christ. Because in the Catholic minds the bread and the cup are, they go through a change of substance, transubstantiation. They go from being common elements like bread and wine to becoming, in their theological view, the actual body and blood of Jesus. So that when... As a Catholic, you go to Mass and the opportunity for the Eucharist comes and you go up to the priest or the deacon or the lay person who's serving communion and they give you the wafer and they say, this is the body of Christ. They mean that literally. That's Roman Catholic teaching. We, of course, do not believe that that is what is happening. And the text itself, I think, um, teaches against that. Because if you just read a bit further down to verse 63, where we find that the people are stumbled by what Jesus is saying. They're offended. They're leaving him because he's saying, you, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says to them, he says, the words that I'm speaking to you are spirit. The flesh profits nothing. I'm not talking to you about, in other words, I'm paraphrasing, but what Jesus is saying is, I'm not talking to you about literally eating my flesh and drinking my blood. The flesh that's the flesh. That, that's not going to profit anything. What I'm talking to you about is spiritual. My words are spirit and they are life. And so there are many sincere Catholics who believe that that's what's happening, but I, I don't think that scripture supports that. Now, some have suggested that the words that Jesus uses here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood were a foreshadowing. So Jesus is projecting here as he's preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. He's, it's a foreshadowing of what's going to come in what we know as communion or the Eucharist. And, and let me say again, you know, Eucharist is a term that's commonly used amongst Catholics or Lutherans or um, more liturgical types of churches some people get freaked out if um, um, low church uh, evangelicals use it. 
they think, man, that guy's preaching Catholicism. He keeps saying Eucharist. Eucharist just means giving thanks. That's the meaning of the word. It's a Greek word. It means giving thanks. But, but it came to be tagged onto this bread and this cup moment because it is the moment where we are giving back thanks to God for his unspeakable gift. So just so you don't get confused by that. So some say that this, this is a foreshadowing of what we call communion because in John's gospel, John's gospel is the only gospel that does not have the, um, the part of the last supper where Jesus takes the bread, breaks it. This is my body broken for you. Takes the cup, passes it around. This is my blood that is shed for you. John does not include that in his gospel for whatever reason. So some believe that, well, this is where uh, John includes it here with Jesus' teaching on the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Well, perhaps so, but it would have been completely lost on his audience. So to me, it doesn't seem that that's actually what he's doing. It could be for later generations who would read John's gospel and say, oh yeah, there's the connection there. I mean, we know there's some connection, but as Jesus is talking to this group of people and saying this, they don't know anything about the Last Supper that's going to come. It's, it's at least a year, if not longer, away. Uh, they don't know that he's going to take bread and break it and say, this is my body and, blood, and wine and pass around and say, this is my blood. They don't know any of that. So it, it would have been lost on them. I think it's better to understand that through this language, through this language, Jesus is calling them to a belief that is far deeper, more intimate, and more all-consuming than anything they had imagined. Now, you know, we, we see it in their responses to so many things, but the general attitude of the people was the Messiah was coming and it was just going to be the kind of thing where he was going to make everything great and we're going to live happily ever after and it's all going to be good and we're going to have a great party and we're going to be living in ease and comfort. That's what they were expecting from the Messiah. So when Jesus comes, even if he is the Messiah, the main thing on their mind is, Get the kingdom thing going. Now get rid of these Romans. Settle us down and let us live that life of ease and comfort and joy that we have been expecting. That in their mind is the messianic vision. Jesus is saying to them, no, this is, <laughs> this is way, way deeper than that. This is much more significant, intimate. This is, I'm talking about an all-consuming thing. Now, let's face it. Lots of people think the same thing about Jesus today. 
I want Jesus to come along side of my life, my vision, my plan, and I want him to bless it. And I want him to be along for the ride so that, you know, when the road gets bumpy, he can help us navigate through that. He can calm the storms that we might encounter. You know, Jesus is an addendum. He's, a, he's something that we add into our lives. That was their thinking. That's the thinking of people still to this very day. Now, Martin Luther, the uh, well-known reformer who was a Catholic monk, who through reading the plain text of scripture came to realize that um, you didn't attain salvation by, by um, your works of righteousness, but it was, was by you know, faith alone in Jesus. This is what he said about the passage that we're looking at here. He said, wherever the message is proclaimed that Christ gave his body into death and shed his blood for our sins, and wherever that is taken to heart, believed and retained, there Christ's body is eaten and his blood is drunk. This is the true meaning of eating and drinking. To eat is synonymous with belief. So that's simple and I think it's right. That's what Jesus is saying. When he's using these metaphors, he's talking about believing, but he's using these strong metaphors because he wants them to understand that believing is not simply giving intellectual assent. It's giving your life to something. That's what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is not a person who just intellectually agrees that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. It's a person who gives themselves entirely to that. So, eating my flesh and drinking my blood is a metaphor for believing in Jesus it's a metaphor that communicates the seriousness of the belief that we are being called to. Following Jesus is no trite matter. It is the most serious commitment that one will ever make. It's the most serious commitment that one will ever make. Because to follow Jesus is basically to have your life completely taken up with his. Like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That that becomes for you. He becomes for you your very life. Now, many in that day could not handle this message. And in Next week's teaching, we'll see the conclusion of the matter is that there's a lot of people that say, adios, Jesus, we can't handle this. I'll leave that for Char for next week. But let's talk as we close about 
what he then finally says in verse 57. He says this, just as a living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So if eating equals believing to salvation, what does feeding refer to? Jesus said, he who feeds on me. So in one sense, there is, he's calling them to make, uh, he's calling them to make uh, an initial commitment or he's calling them to an act, a singular act of faith, which then gives them life. But then he's referring to another thing here, I think, in this word, feeds on me. Now he's talking about the ongoing experience with Jesus. Because Jesus didn't call us to just give a one-time affirmation that he is the Son of God and at one time in our lives say, well, I believe that and I accept that. Now, some people apparently think that because I have met numerous people who have no outward evidence whatsoever that they know or follow Jesus, and yet they have told me about when they got saved. Well, I got saved back in the 70s. I got saved in 1994. Oh, yeah, I got saved. 10 years ago. But there, there's, there's nothing about their lives that would indicate that that happened. So if there's a real transaction that takes place, a, a true conversion, there's going to be some evidence for it that proceeds from it. And that happens because we feed on Jesus. We feed on him. It refers to the ongoing communion with and dependency on Jesus that we all must give ourselves to regularly. So feeding on Jesus is to seek to encounter him wherever we are. You know, there's a lot of people that go to church still. Maybe the numbers are dwindling according to the polls, but there's still a lot of people who go to church. But going to church doesn't necessarily equal being a Christian, does it? Before I was a Christian, I went to church occasionally. I identified as being part of a denomination, if you ask me. Are you a Christian? No, I'm a Catholic. I didn't know <laughs> that those were actually the same thing. But, uh, but you know, but pe people might say, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Episcopalian, whatever. You know, there's a lot of people that would identify in that way 
but yet not have a vital, ongoing life experience with Jesus. But those who are feeding on Jesus are seeking to encounter him in the obvious places like his word and worship and prayer, in the community of God's people, in service to the Lord, in mission for the kingdom. Those are the obvious places where those who know Jesus are are seeking him in those contexts, but also in the not so obvious places. The ordinary routines, habits, and experiences of life. See, in other words, the real follower of Jesus doesn't just do church as a religious obligation or do spiritual works as a religious obligation. The true follower of Jesus is the person who is looking to encounter Jesus in all of their life. He's part of everything that we do. Feeding on Jesus is to have your life revolve around him to live ultimately to know and to glorify him. And so that brings us to our final part of this aspect of our service today, once again, to the bread and the cup that are before us. Now, I'm going to use another word that could be scary for some. It's the word sacrament. Again, liturgical churches use language like Eucharist, like sacrament. Um, Churches like ours normally don't. But the word sacrament is not a bad word. It's a word that, that simply means a sign that points to a spiritual reality. That's, that's what a sacrament is. And most, most people, whether you're high church, liturgical, uh, or you're low church, just come as you are, um, most, most Christians recognize that Jesus gave to the church two sacraments. Some say there are more. Most people recognize at least two, one of them being baptism, an outward act that's demonstrating a spiritual reality. The other is communion. And it is with what we call the Lord's Supper that is here before us today, these common elements, these everyday things, bread and wine, in our case, grape juice. But bread and wine, they represent, so they're, they're physical things, but they represent something spiritual. And so although we do not believe in transubstantiation, we do not believe that when you come to take the bread and the cup, you're taking back to your seat the actual body and blood of Jesus. What we do believe, though, is that as we focus on the bread and the cup, as we take some time and it brings us back to that offering, of the body and the blood of Jesus, 
It is an opportunity to connect with him in a fresh moment. That, that's what we believe it is. And that's why I think it's such a blessing to be able to do this together each week. And so let me just read a, a quote to you real quick as we close. The sacraments are spiritual realities scaled down, physicalized, individualized, simplified, and concretized. Now think of the difference between abstract and concrete. I mean, isn't it true at times, you know, like something that's abstract is something that's like, I, I kind of, ah, it's a little hard. I, I, I kind of think I get it. I'm not quite sure. Can you make that more tangible? Can you give me a more concrete example? <laughs> so we can be talking abstractly about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. But the more concrete is to actually hold it in my hand and feel it and see it and experience it. And God intended us to do that. See, there is an, an idea in, in many Christians that we just, all this material stuff we need to get away from because God is spiritual and he wants everything to be just spiritual and we can't think about material types of things, material bad, spiritual good. You know, that is actually more Greek philosophy than it is Christianity. Jesus took real objects and he said, this bread is my body. This cup is my blood. You see, the Lord wants us to have this place where it goes from our heart to our hands, from our soul to our body. Jesus knew that we needed these things in order to grasp him more easily, to come to him more specifically. And so that's what we have the opportunity to do. We're talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And as we've said, it's basically a life that, Lord, I am all in with you. And this bread and this cup is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to reorient our lives around him, making him the center of our universe, making him our home, making him our primary identity. And once again, a final quote, the Lord's Supper is a repeated altar call to ongoing conversion, to fresh recommitments and entrustments of oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. So that's what it is. It's a, it's a fresh opportunity to recommit ourselves, to reorient ourselves, to, to, to rethink our week and our habits and those things, and to just say, Lord, just like you gave yourself for me, and this bread represents it, and you shed your blood for me, Lord, I give my life to you. Not a little bit of my life. Not, you know, just part. But Lord, I give you my all. That's what we're saying 
as we partake of the bread and the cup. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, feed on me. And that's where we experience that life. So Lord, we do pray as we feed on you through the obvious things throughout our days in scripture and in worship and prayer and community with other believers and mission and all of that. Lord, also just in the, whatever we do, we go, we go to work. We take care of things at home. We go out and we enjoy family and friends and life and food and all of those things. Lord, help us to, to begin to see that in all of these things, we have the opportunity to feed on you. And thank you for this bread and this cup today. And may you reorient us as we partake of it in Jesus' name.